The ruler of Israel, when Jesus was born, was a man named Herod the Great. And I've mentioned this in the last two sermons. When Herod the Great became ruler of Israel, he was appointed by the Roman Empire. And so the Roman Empire had rule over um, the area of Israel, and they put Herod in charge. And when they put him in charge, he faced some pretty stiff resistance right away. The people in Israel were saying, Herod cannot be our king. He cannot be the ruler here because he's not 100% Jewish. You need to find somebody who's 100% Jewish, and we can look at their family tree. We can log on to Ancestry.com and prove it. No, they didn't have Ancestry.com, obviously. And so Herod, faced with this opposition, did the most politically expedient thing he could think of, the thing that made the most sense, and he had all of his genealogical records destroyed. So that when someone came and said, Herod, you can't rule over us because you are not the right bloodline, he could say, prove it. And they couldn't. Of course, it didn't work. We know he did this, but that's what he was trying to do. This is a trouble for me, so I'm going to cover it up. I'm going to lie about my background so people will think better of me. I mention that because into that world, just a few decades later, the New Testament began to be written. And the Gospel of Matthew that we're looking at this morning, the first book in the New Testament was written. And it begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It traces his uh, genealogy all the way back to Abraham who lived around 2000 B.C. And you get this list of names. But think about that. Herod destroyed his genealogy. But Jesus inspired by his Holy Spirit, Matthew, to write one down for everybody to read. And it's remarkable because Jesus was facing a lot of the same accusations. He was a different kind of king, utterly different kind of king than Herod. But there were people when Jesus, when the, the church started to grow and they're preaching about who Jesus is, they were saying, well, Jesus is not the Messiah. He can't be the Messiah because I'm not sure he's completely Jewish. In fact, we think he's a Samaritan. He wasn't. Samaritans were like uh, you know, cousins to the Jewish people. There were people that were saying, well, he was born of a encounter between Mary and a Roman soldier that was stationed in her town. They were saying all kinds of things. So Jesus has this genealogy published, but what we find there is maybe shocking. Because if you read through and you actually look at who those names belong to, the list that's put there, there's some names and some stories that if I was you know, publishing my genealogy, I think I would have skipped over some of the generations that are listed. Because there's people there who, um, there's no other way to put it, there's some people who did some horrible, horrible things. There's people in the list that aren't Jewish at all. So if he's trying to prove, like, I got that 100% pure, whatever, bloodline, this genealogy fails. And in one of the most shocking things in the world into which Jesus was born, the genealogy listed in Matthew chapter 1 has five women listed. Five women listed. Now, the genealogies in the ancient world, they were always tied to show you, like, legal line. This guy has the right to a throne because he's connected up here. And it shows us that he's descended from King David. But there are five women listed in this genealogy. And that's remarkable because for the purposes of what genealogies usually did, they gained him nothing. But he wanted us to know these five women are my mom and my grandmothers 
This is the line to which I belong. So what we're doing this December is we're looking at all of the women listed. Two weeks ago, we looked at Tamar, Genesis 38. Last week, we looked, uh, we've, you know, fast-forwarded about 400, 500 years to look at um, Rahab. And this morning, we're fast-forwarding from Rahab just one generation later to a woman named Ruth. And we're going to look at the shocking ways that God worked in her life and her choices to bring about His purposes. Because I think it gives us a glimpse into how God works in our lives. And most importantly, it points us forward to Jesus. With that said, our passage this morning is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1-6. through 6. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham... Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, that in it you show us who you are and who we are in you. So I pray in these moments as we look into the treasure of the gospel, that our hearts would be moved, our hearts would be even ravished by the depth of your love for us. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I read this week a very tragic story about a woman named Mary Ann Bevan. She lived uh, early 1900s, so turn of the 20th century. And Mary Ann Bevan, she kind of, you know, she wasn't from an important family or anything. But when she was a young woman, she was traditionally beautiful. She trained to be a nurse, and she became a nurse. She met a man who fell in love with her. They married, and they had four kids. When Marianne was about 30 years old, though, she noticed something was going wrong in her body. Um, She felt odd. It felt like um, parts of her body, for lack of a better word, were growing that weren't supposed to grow anymore. She went to the doctor and found out she had a disorder. Um, I can't remember what it was called, but it caused uh, features in her face to grow grotesquely. So her forehead continued to grow, her ears, her nose, her teeth. Mouth, And as her 30s progressed, she went from this young, beautiful woman to a woman that was disfigured. A woman who people stared at in public and little children ran away from. But it was okay. She had a husband who loved her. She had four kids. When Marianne was 40, her husband died unexpectedly. And suddenly, she's looking at the reality that she's a woman in the early 20th century who can't make enough money as a nurse to support her and her four children. She doesn't know what to do. So she notices this advertisement for a contest that offered a prize to the winner. But the contest was the world's ugliest woman. And so she entered the contest and she won. She won the cash prize And that spun off into her joining the circus as a sideshow. Pay money to come see Mary Ann Bevan, the ugliest woman in the world. For the last 19 years of her life, that's what she did. 
She allowed people to gawk at her, to stare at her body and laugh and scowl because that's what it took for her. That was the option in front of her to make sure her kids were okay. For 19 years, she would expose herself to shame and ridicule the ugliest woman in the world. I bring that up because when we meet Ruth, which she has a whole book in the Old Testament, by the way. It's just after Judges, the book of Ruth. When we meet Ruth, she's a woman a lot like Mary Ann Bevan. She's not disfigured, but she's a woman who had the same type of dilemma in front of her. How do I care well for this person that I love when the options in front of me seem impossible? When the only option seems for me to throw my body, throw myself at a man, to use my body as a way to secure home and security for my mother-in-law. The story of Ruth finds us a generation after Rahab. So we were looking at that last week. And what's happened in this generation is the Israelites have come into the promised land and they've begun to settle down. The land has been divvied up between the 12 tribes of Israel and each family has gotten their portion. And they've established themselves there, not so much in big cities. At the time, it was more of an agricultural society. And so they were spread out into different spots and you would, uh, you would mostly be with your family but then you would be connected to your clan, which was like a collection of families. And then clans were collected into tribes, which was a collection of clans. It was mostly an agricultural society. Very rural and agriculturally focused. And then a famine hits. This is what happens at the beginning of the book of Ruth. And one family seems to immediately leave. Now they've only been in the promised land for one generation. But this famine hits and they freak out. And this man says, well, I'm taking my wife, her name's Naomi, and uh, my two sons, and we're leaving here all together. We're going to a place called Moab. Now, Moab was like on the other side of the Dead Sea, um, probably only 100, 150 miles away from uh, Bethlehem, which is actually where Ruth, where Naomi's family was. But culturally, and in the world of that time, it was like going to the other side of the earth. So they go to Moab because there's a famine. And while they're there, tragedy strikes. The man dies. And then the two sons die after they had married. And all of a sudden, it's Naomi, this widow, and her two daughters-in-law, who are Moabite women. They're not from Israel at all and never had been. And they're deciding what to do. Naomi decides she's going to go back to Israel. She's going to go back to the promised land and there's nothing for me here in Moab. I don't know how to make ends meet here. I'm going to go home and see what happens. And she tells her daughters-in-law, you guys stay here. Stay in your home. Stay where you're from. And find husbands. You're young. But Ruth, her daughter-in-law, refuses. Ruth, who has no ties to Israel whatsoever, no ties to the promised land. She's never been there before. She says, no, I'm bound to you in love, Naomi. And in fact, she even makes a vow to her, a vow so powerful that it's been used actually for centuries in wedding ceremonies. Ruth says to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you will go, I will go. And where you stay, I'll stay. 
Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And where you die, there I'll die and there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if even death separates you and me. This is a profound commitment. These aren't empty words that Ruth is saying. And she, I think, partly knows what she's saying. We're going back to a place, right now we're living in destitution, and we're going to another place where we're probably going to live in destitution. And my bond and my vow to you is I will do whatever it takes to care for you. Period. So they arrive back, and they're desperate, and it's harvest season, so it's too late for them to plant anything. It's too late for them to plant and harvest on the land that the family had originally left behind, and they need to eat. And so Ruth goes out to where the workers are harvesting in the fields, to fields she has no claim on. And she follows the workers as they're working, hoping they'll overlook as they're going, hoping they'll drop something. It's the equivalent of our, in our world of going to the intersection outside of a Walmart and holding a sign that says, out of work, Please help. Out of work, anything helps. But Ruth's willing to do this. She loves Naomi. Well, she winds up in this field that's owned by a man named Boaz. And Boaz notices her. Who is this woman in my field? And he makes sure she has food and water. And not just when she's picking. He kind of tells her, like, if you need food and water, it's, it's over here. And he tells the people that are picking in his field, he says, you know what, take out some of the choice stuff, some of these sheaves, and leave them for her to be able to take home when she's done. Don't just leave her the left behind stuff. Give her, give her some of the, the great stuff. Pull it aside for her. And he gives her protection. He knows how vulnerable she is. And he sends her home with plenty and invites her to come back if you need more. Well, she returns to Naomi and she's excited because that has worked out better than she expected. But she discovers something remarkable. That Boaz, who had treated her with kindness, is actually one of Naomi's close male relatives. Naomi even calls him a guardian redeemer. Now that's not saying he's a superhero. It sounds like a superhero thing. That's a legal title. In that world, if a, a man died, if tragedy struck a family, and suddenly the family did not know what to do, the closest male relative was legally responsible for them to make sure they were okay, that they wouldn't be left in destitution. Now that was a law that was put on the books. We're not sure how well it was actually enacted, but it was on the books. That was the ideal. Nobody's left in destitution. When tragedy strikes, there's something to help. And so she finds out that Boaz is one of these guardian redeemers of their family. And Ruth, remarkably, in her great need, had gone exactly to his fields, which immediately gets Naomi's mind turning. Naomi starts thinking, okay, well she wound up in Boaz's field... And she devises a plan. And this is where the book of Ruth gets very interesting. Because Naomi devises a plan for Ruth to seduce Boaz. To get him to marry her. To trick him, essentially. Into marrying her. She tells her this. This is a quote from the book of Ruth. This is what Naomi tells Ruth. Tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash 
put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, note the place where he's lying, and then go uncover his feet, that's a euphemism, and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Throw yourself at this man, because this is our chance. This is our opportunity to be okay. And Ruth does exactly that. Because if throwing herself at a man means that she can care for her mother-in-law, she's willing to do it. So she does what Naomi told her to do. She comes to Boaz in the night. It's in private and makes sure to tell you like no one can see. It's dark. And there it is. Now I don't know how the other men in Ruth's life had treated her. But I do know that that world was not so different than her own. A pretty woman who's desperate. There are scores and scores of women who have done exactly what they had to do to survive. And scores and scores of men who have taken advantage of exactly that. To use those women. To treat them like things. Even men that will marry a woman who's desperate because he knows in the long term he's always got that. He's got that power. So Ruth, in desperation, throws herself at Boaz, and Boaz realizes immediately what's going on. But Ruth finds in Boaz a man who sees her. He doesn't just see outward beauty. He doesn't just see an opportunity to fulfill a desire. Maybe for the first time in her entire life, she, sees, she meets a man who sees her. She doesn't have to throw herself at him to try and manipulate the situation. So Boaz in that moment tells her, we need to do the right thing. There's another guardian redeemer who is legally closer in line than me. They stop short in the moment. And he goes to that man to see if he's actually committed to care for Naomi and Ruth the way he's supposed to. And when he says he's not, Boaz then marries Ruth. And they begin a family. Boaz is an utterly remarkable man. I'm telling you because I've read through the scriptures many times, there are not a lot of good guys. It's true. I thought about, I thought about it last year when we were prepping for Advent season then, and I, I realized I couldn't think of a... I was having a hard time coming up with a single uh, guy in the Bible that we would call a good dad. It's hard. Some dark stories there. So who is this man who has a woman throw herself at him with no one to see? He could have no, you know, no responsibility there. And do what he wants. And he stops. This man is the son of Rahab, who we looked at last week, whose story we encountered last week. Boaz is the son of of Rahab. And if you remember Rahab's story, it was the story of an outsider finding home. When God's grace finds Rahab, she's a prostitute who cared for her family, who sold her body and threw her body at men as the way to make ends meet. That was Boaz's mom's story, and he knew his mom's story. And he was shaped and transformed on how God's grace had transformed his mom. 
And when he saw Ruth in the field and heard what had happened about Naomi, it became his priority to make sure they were okay. And when Boaz saw a desperate woman willing, what she had, willing to do what she had to do to care for herself and his, her mother-in-law, he knew his mom's story. He knew his mom had been that woman. He knew his mom had been that woman. And that God's grace had meant that her life changed when she came into a new kind of community where people were the priority. And the desperation of someone else was a crisis that demanded action. So as far as Boaz has any say in it, Ruth does not have to be that woman. His mom had been that woman, but he saw how God's grace transforms. And he knew the story of what God was at work to do. And so when this woman's throwing himself at him, herself at him, he can say, no, dignity belongs to you because my mom was this woman. Dignity belonged to her. But he didn't know just his mom's story. He knew God's story, who God is and what God cares about. And he walked in step with that. I mention all of this and I'm dragging it out because there's something to be said here, um, not just to parents, but to all of us, that when we are able to walk in God's grace, when we realize the depth of God's love for us in Jesus, and we walk in that, we inhabit that story, when we live in that, it echoes out when we're vulnerable even to the next generation about our weaknesses and our failures, when we don't cover up our stories as skeletons that need to be hidden away in closets, something profound and transforming happens. When we can show and speak about in transparent ways how God's grace has found us and continues to find us and is transforming us, it will be the most significant thing for the next generation. You know, a lot of churches worry about the next generation. Are they going to, you know, are they going to carry on? Are they going to have faith in Jesus? Are they going to leave the church behind? And every, I feel like every two weeks there's some new article on some newspaper or magazine that's, what are we going to do about the next generation? It's not a program. It's not uh, getting the coolest and the most active stuff on the events calendar. It is the day in, day out reality of walking as people who are carried along by the grace of God. That is what will reverberate out and echo out into the next generation. Not getting them involved in more stuff, but them seeing, not just in our own stories, but the stories of other people. Them living in a community that is different a community that is authentic and real. There's something to be said as we see Boaz not take advantage of Ruth about what God's grace had meant for Rahab and through Rahab to Boaz. And there's something to be said about how God's grace has found us, what that means for our kids and the kids of others in our church and what that will mean for their children. It will mean a completely different trajectory for their life. One of the reasons that the book, was, book of Ruth was written, because interestingly, the book of Ruth ends with a genealogy. The last few verses of the book of Ruth is a genealogy. Because one of the reasons it was written was that Ruth is actually the grandmother of King David. She was the grandmother 
of King David. And as David became king, there were people saying, there's no way that he can be king over us. Because his grandmother, his grandmother was a Moabite. She wasn't an Israelite at all. And his grandfather, Boaz, he was half Canaanite. Because remember, Rahab wasn't an Israelite either. At least not by you know, uh, her family tree. So how in the world can David be our king over Israel? How can he be an inheritor of promises of God to Abraham if his grandmother's not Israelite at all and his grandfather's half Israelite? Remarkably, what this book shows is that Ruth was a Moabite. It doesn't say, it doesn't make up some like random Israelites like that's actually her mom and dad. It tells you the truth. And it doesn't cover up the reality of uh, Boaz's background either. All of that gossip about David's family tree is true. But it shows us something deeper. The book of Ruth shows us that being part of God's people, being a member of the kingdom of God, has never, ever been a matter of being able to trace it on a sheet of paper. It's not about having the right last name. It's never been about that. It's about being captured by the love of God and learning to value what He values, and learning to love what He loves. And when we see Ruth and when we see Boaz, we see that absolutely. We don't see the right quote-unquote bloodline, but we see people that when the grace of God encountered them face-to-face, they saw what it was and they walked in that people who found themselves swept into the story of God at work to redeem and save and people who were learning what it meant to live in that freedom of finding a love that they did not earn and now cannot lose and both of them Ruth and Boaz the importance of their story or the greatest significance of this story is that they pointed forward to Jesus they pointed forward to their great 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 how many greats grandson in ways that they could not have imagined. Ruth was sacrificially committed to her mother-in-law. We read that vow earlier. She's like, whatever it takes, whatever it means, I'm going where you go. I will die where you die. She said, may it be severe unto me if even death separates us. That's commitment. But what does that point forward to? A greater commitment of Jesus to us. Ruth was willing to abandon a culture and everything she'd known and willing to beg for food and throw her body at a man to make sure that Naomi was okay. But Jesus, Jesus left the glory that belongs to him as right, as the Son of God, to take on flesh, to become one of us and join himself to us. And when he came, he did not come to the halls of power. He did not come to palaces. He was born into poverty. He lived in a town that was the size of Spivey's Corner. That's how big Nazareth was, just down the road here. And lived in obscurity. He learned a trade. But Jesus left this glory that belongs to him to enter into our world, to experience what we experience. And when he began his ministry, he did not travel in luxury. If you read through the Gospels, our Lord was homeless. Our Lord was single. Our Lord was childless. 
He lived on the generosity of other people. And he faced rejection and shame and violence and injustice and death. And he literally threw his body at every obstacle that stood in the way between us and our home with him. And just like Ruth, when she she and Boaz decided to marry... And she knew she didn't have to do that any longer. But she didn't leave Naomi, who was trying to scheme, behind. Because Ruth finding home meant Naomi finding home. Jesus was raised from death, completely vindicated by God the Father, and He carries us along with Him. We receive all the benefits that are His by right, they're ours by grace. And so now, forever, today and forevermore, We are the delighted in children of God. We didn't do anything to get in there. We don't do anything to get out. We are secure and safe because Jesus has secured it for us and made it safe for us. And Boaz. Boaz lived a life that did not degrade and did not denigrate others. He saw them. He did what was right. He had an eye for the outsider and the needy. He saw the needs of others as more important than his own wealth. Of course that points forward to Jesus and His love for us because Jesus sees past our schemes and our disguises. The religions of our world are like Naomi telling us to put on our best, to wash, to put on perfume, to try to manipulate. Put on this religious costume and earn the respect of everybody else around you. The subtle promise there is if you can be good enough, then God won't despise you anymore. Then He'll really love you. But Jesus, you know what? He sees past our schemes and our disguises. Boaz could see that Ruth was a beautiful woman, of course. But Jesus, for Him, we don't have to make Him want us or love us. We don't have to dress ourselves up and make ourselves clean. We don't have to make ourselves lovely for Him to love us. He loves us, and that makes us lovely. He loves us, and that's what makes us lovely. So stop thinking that you need to make God love you. He already does. Stop toiling away to try to earn something that is already yours. Walk in the freedom of knowing that. Be free. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the glory of the gospel. I thank you that you worked in the story of Ruth and Boaz to show who you are and what you're about. I thank you that you have worked and pointed forward in that to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, our true Redeemer. I pray, Lord, that as we reflect in this Advent season, as we are seeing these manger scenes, that we would never be uh, treat that as a casual thing. It's so easy to, because they're everywhere in this season. But Lord, may we never feel, fail to be amazed and blown away the depth of your love for us. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.